welcome to Stuff Ian Likes, the podcast about stuff that Ian likes. My name's Ian Banks. I'm using this podcast to look at how some of my favourite pieces of art have changed the way I look at the world. It explores how art can affect the way we look at things around us, and it's a chance for me to go squee over things that I love. I'm not going to do a deep dive into the background of each piece. What you're going to get is a brief survey of what it is, what I like about it, and how it's influenced me in my own thinking. Thanks for joining me. Michael Shea came to prominence in the 1970s with his novel, The Quest for Symbolus, which was a sequel of sorts to Jack Vance's novel, The Eyes of the Overworld, one of his dying earth novels. But despite much of Shea's work, his brilliant short stories aside, displaying their roots very heavily on their sleeve, he has a fantastic originality to his writing. Nift of the Lean is such a book. It's a collection of four novellas framed by the device of a series of scholarly articles that read as an introduction as well as a, an eulogy by one of Nift's friends, the superbly named Shag Margold. Nift, we soon discover, is a thief, a rogue and a scoundrel, albeit one with a heart of gold or some other highly malleable substance. Each of the four stories shows a different side to his skills as well as different aspects of the world he lives in. In the first story, Come Then Mortal, We Will Seek Her Soul, Nift is telling the story of one of his earlier exploits to his friend, Barnard the Chillite, who features in all the other stories. It's a tale of how Nift and a colleague were roped into a quest by the ghost of a dead woman who wants revenge on her still-living lover with whom she swore a suicide pact. It's a fantastic tale of an afterlife and an underworld with enough horrors to make Hieronymus Bosch go and have a lie down on a warm milk. It's written prosaically, but with a wonderfully dry wit that makes the horrors seen and experienced all the more terrifying and revolting, especially when you think about them afterwards. The second story, story The Pearls of the Vampire Queen, is a simple caper. Nift and Varna form a plan to swindle a vampire queen out of a fortune in pearls. Despite there being a really strong supernatural element to the story, this is more of a heist reminding the reader of some of the adventures of Fritz Lieber's Thafford and the Grey Mouser, which I think is probably a pretty hefty influence on the whole novel. But the third story is the absolute highlight of the book for me and worth reading on its own. It's, it's really a short novel of the sort that Michael Moorcock used to write monthly in the 1960s. It's called The Fishing of the Demon Sea, and it begins with Nift and Barna facing execution for their crimes in an uninspiring little town near a vent into the never regions of hell. Conveniently, they're reprieved at the last minute by the lord of the manor and given a task. They must rescue his son from the aforementioned never regions. Reluctantly, the pair agree and begin a quest that's gripping and hilarious in equal measures. It's a travelogue that Clark Ashton Smith would have been proud to write with ghouls and monsters that would warm the subcockle regions of H.P. Lovecraft's heart. It's a there and back again quest, and once the son is rescued, the pair find that keeping him alive, or even wanting to, isn't as easy as they may have thought. The final story, The Goddess in Class, is, in my not-so-humble opinion, the weakest of the four stories. It's more of a mystery quest, with a more scientific than fantastic backdrop, and relies less on heroics and swordplay than the other three. While Nift and Barna are definitely up to it, the logistics of the story often seem to overwhelm the rather gentle plot. However, your mileage may vary, and it's as different from the other three tales as they were from each other, and it's Interesting to see a more cerebral side to the titular character, as well as watching him take a, more of a, a background role in the storytelling.
I first came across this book during the explosion in popularity that fantasy was enjoying during the 1980s. The cover of my edition, which was possibly inspired by a publicity still for the then recent Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, Conan the Destroyer, fed all the hopes that my genre-loving mind could cope with. And then when I started reading it, I realized this was smarter than a lot of stuff I usually looked at. But it didn't try to be literary smart or grown-up smart. It just kept your interest by being well-written and exciting rather than just one or neither of them. And to Dungeons & Dragons playing me, it was a world that effortlessly mixed the supernatural and the mundane without anyone querying it. Older me realized that this was a literary device that had been employed since the days of Homer, but younger me was having too much fun to really care about that, and it made me seek out a lot more smart stuff to read. As a whole, though, the book is a magnificent read and forms the first part of a series that Shay would add to over the next couple of decades. If you've read or enjoyed any of the authors I've mentioned during the course of this perambulation down memory lane, you may very well find something to enjoy here. If you'd like some more Stuff Ian Likes, you can read more at StuffIanLikes.com and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at StuffIanLikes, which is all one word, or you can go to Facebook to the Stuff Ian Likes page. That's three words. Thanks for listening.